Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 57 of The Yacking Show. And this is where we talk about life, business, and more, all sorts of interesting things. And we bring you tips and ideas for the very changing world we're living in, and it's certainly changing. We have an interesting lineup of guests, and as always, today's guest is no exception. It's Kathleen will introduce her in a moment, but a little bit of background. I heard her speak about two years ago, and I suddenly thought, I know who's going to make a good guest for our show. So first, let me welcome Kathleen. Uh, hello, Kathleen. Nice to see you again. Hello, Peter. Uh, thanks for that intro, and thank all of you for joining us. We so appreciate you tuning into our show, and as always, please keep your comments coming. We read every one of them. And uh, if anyone out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And as Peter mentioned, yes, we do have another special guest. Her name is Kelly, Don Kelly Donovan, pardon me, who ha is the uh, president and founder of Fit for Duty. Welcome, Kelly. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, Kelly, I'm going to turn it over to you so you can tell our audience a little bit about your background and um, what you are currently doing with Fit for Duty. Sure. Well, I was started off as a police officer. Coming into this journey, I was working as a police officer. And I found myself in a position where I had witnessed some things on the job that I thought were you know, improper, at least uh, potentially unethical or illegal at worst. Um, but I, I just knew that something was happening that was wrong, had to be addressed. And I took it upon myself to report what I had witnessed. I went to the police services board and made a, made a presentation to them about what I had seen. And the end result was that I was disciplined. So it turned around on me. Um, I was vilified. I was put under investigation. I was taken out of my job. So it was the first real experience I had with whistleblower retaliation, where somebody in a workplace speaks up because of what they're seeing. And then they're the ones that face the retaliation. You know, their allegation is not looked into and not investigated. So that experience is really what started me on my path of advocacy you know, and trying to do what's right. Um, but the end of this journey that I've had resulted in me leaving the profession of policing and starting my own business. So what I did was I, I chose the name Fit for Duty because in a profession like policing and other professions, um, there's a term that's that the term fit for duty is used to basically mean that you're able to go to work, you know, you you can physically pass the demands required of your job, um, and then you're, you're told you can go back to work, you're fit for duty. But in my experience, you know, I was surrounded by 750 police officers who might meet the definition of fit for duty, but their ethical standards were not at a level where they felt the need to speak up like I did. So I really started to see that term much differently. I started thinking of it in the sense of, you know, is, is an employee on the job considered to be fit for duty if they're willing to sacrifice their internal morals and ethics um, and not report conduct that they see that is wrong? Because in my opinion, they're not really fit to be on the job if they're willing to overlook things that they see within their workplace. Right. So what I do with Fit for Duty, I mean, I'm, I'm doing workplace investigations and I'm also doing some consulting, but really it's around developing policy and procedures to identify the blind spots with an ethical plan. So if you have a reporting mechanism for workplace misconduct or harassment, there has to be something in place to protect those people that come forward. And there has to be an independent and impartial investigation that is conducted. Really, it's all around improving the overall safety of workplace 
sorry, of workplaces, but doing so in a way that is ethical um, and not in a way that just benefits the employer. I mean, if we have legislation in place to ensure that workplaces are safe, then there have to be processes in place to make sure that that happens. Sure. Okay. You, you've answered what I was going to ask you next. What motivated you to start Fit for Duty? But let, let's expand on that. Many people in your position would have said, ah, you know, I've had a rough deal. Um, I'm just going to forget about this and move on with my life and go into something completely different, whatever that might have been. But you, you chose to actually do something about it and, and build a business around that. So what was the spark? Um, were, were you just generally fed up with what had happened to you personally? Or did you see this is a bit of a crusade you should get on for the benefit of all sorts of other people down the track? What was the big motivation? Yeah, it was really that, you know, when I first spoke up in policing, um, I, I felt like I was the only one doing this. I was the only one that thought these, these issues are important. But when I started conducting research, which ended up resulting in, in my first book that I published, um, my research was leading me to find all these other people that had experienced the same thing as I had. So mm -hmm. they had exposed something within the workplace. You know, the, the employer had hired a law firm to come in and conduct an investigation, but the investigation had been tailored to the result that the employer had requested in the beginning. So I started seeing that this happens all the time, that this wasn't just an isolated case with me. And, and I guess that's kind of what motivated me to say that, you know, if we're going to put something in place that says it's there to protect workers in the workplace, then we have to make sure that that's actually what it's doing, that it's fulfilling its intended purpose. So right. I started just developing my programs based on what I thought they should have always been from the beginning. So, you know, not giving the control to the abuser to decide yes. how the allegation is handled, you know, right. certain things like that. So if I'm dealing with an organization, I'm making sure that they see it through the lens of an abused employee. You know, okay. if, they're, if they're going to find the courage to come forward, then you have to make sure that you're creating an environment that is safe, that that person would be protected, and you're taking the control away from the alleged abuser. Because when you look at, you know, there's a lot of small workplaces out there that don't account for a complaint coming forward about the employer themselves. Sure. And our laws are intended to protect those workers, but not, not every workplace has incorporated these changes to our laws. Right. Before so, I hand back to Kathleen, sorry, can I ask you a quick, okay. quick follow-up one there? Um, did you see a, a noticeable difference in your work? Have you seen a noticeable difference between, say, government and private enterprise or between small and large industries, businesses, or, or across different types of industries? Is it worse in industrial and commercial, retail? Is there a pattern or is it just all over the place? Um, I think the only pattern might be that in private enterprise, it's a lot easier for an employee to let an employee, uh, sorry, an employer to let an employee go. So right. I think in, in smaller business, private industry, I think when an employee starts complaining and making issues about something that's happening, it is easier for them to walk that employee out the door and eliminate the problem that way which right. is not beneficial to employees. Um, but, but I do see in larger industries or in, in government, it is harder for them to ignore the complaints, although to a certain extent they try to, um, right. but it is easier for workers to come forward because there's a, there are a lot more eyes watching those workplaces sure. than there are a private industry. So unfortunately, there are a lot of people working for small private companies that get mistreated and you know the best solution for them is to leave, move on and get a job somewhere else. So right. the legislation, it's not working as it's intended to it's not protecting these people sure mm. over to Kathleen she's got something she wants to ask you go for it so Kelly who typically picks up the phone to call you is it 
is it the employee that feels that has has been wronged or is it the employer and how how do you end up going into the organization to do those those investigations how's that well there's, I mean, there's really two things that can happen. The employer can take it upon themselves to say, I've been made aware that there is an issue within my workplace and I would like to take initiative and bring an investigator in. Um, and I applaud those employers because it, they never know what they're going to get when they bring an independent investigator in. You know, any result could, could come of that investigation and they're taking a bit of a risk in that sense because they, they have very little to no control over that process. Um, the other way though, is if an employee does complain to the Ministry of Labor, there have been incident, incidents where the employee, or sorry, the Ministry of Labor will order the employer to hire an investigator to come in and look at the situation. So those are really the two ways that I would be involved. I mean, sadly, the provincial legislation in Ontario has not picked up the federal um, changes in so far as the federal legislation says that the employee can decide who investigates their complaint. That's not the case in Ontario. So as you know, if, if you're a regular employee working under the Ontario legislation, you can't say to your employer, I want you to hire Kelly, um, but federal employees can, which is a good change because that means we're slowly starting to recognize the fact that if a person comes forward with a complaint, they should have some control over how that complaint is handled. It can't be completely up to the employer to do whatever they'd like with that complaint all behind closed doors and then just report back to the worker and say, we've looked into it and there's no grounds to your complaint. And that's why you get, you know, these issues in workplaces that are building and, you know, the Me Too movement really exposed a lot of the workplace conduct that had been tolerated in the past that's now being exposed simply because people are getting fed up with their employers not handling it properly and going public with the information. So Kelly, how does how does compliance differ from meeting ethical standards? Well, really, that's that's my opinion in that the compliance is kind of your bare bones level that you should achieve. Um, when you look at the laws, I mean, the laws are written in such a basic manner that to be compliant is really just to meet that basic lowest standard. And what I try to do is say, well, how can we make this better? How could we make it more ethical? So obviously, having been a whistleblower, I always look at it from the standpoint of protecting the person coming forward. Because you know, the, the, there's two things I like to talk about. I like to talk about protecting that person coming forward because they are showing courage to report what happened because there's never an incident where the person coming forward is actually rewarded. You know, their, their career potential is never, you know, positively influenced because they made a complaint. It's always the other way around. They're always looked at differently. It affects their reputation in the workplace. So you've got that aspect where the culture has to change within the workplace to start to reward the people that come forward. But the other thing I like to tell employers is that, you know, they're always trying to find out how can we detect workplace misconduct? Can we put cameras up? You know, can we plant microphones? They always want to have, you know, covert methods of detecting workplace misconduct. But your best source are the human sources walking around your workplace 24-7. You know, the employees within your workplace are all seeing what's happening around them. And if they have a way to tap into the knowledge of all those workers, then they can have a thumb on the pulse of the organization all the time. You know, so it's really a matter of, you know, having a conduit between your workers and the management so that information can flow freely and there's no, there's no case where, you know, somebody making a complaint is going to face any retaliation, you know, and that's why whistleblower programs are so great 
because people can make anonymous reports of something they witness or something they hear being talked about in the washroom. And then that can be investigated to see if there's any truth to it. That, you know, that we can start to expose things that are happening within a workplace that maybe previously were being kept secret. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But <clears throat> for that to happen as well, the lower level employees have got to feel comfortable and have access to higher level managers because the whole problem might exist at one level above them at supervisory or, or lower management levels. And, and if Absolutely. they go the formal, the formal reporting route, it's going to get squashed and they're going to be victimized. But if they can get above that, then maybe something will happen. Well, and Interesting that's, one. that's where I'd like to see fit for duty go is I would like to be the independent body that would accept these types of complaints. Sure. So management would never even see them. They would come directly to my agency to be investigated, at least to the point where we can say to the employer, there is some legitimacy here. So then there's never a chance that anyone within the organization could tamper with that complaint. Sure. No, very good. So I got one for you. How does Canada stand to compare to other developed countries? Are we good, bad in the middle? What's your experience? What's your idea on that? I, I think we're, I mean, if you're comparing like above the, you know, we're, we're not talking every nation around the world, but no, I think no, of developed, the developed, developed. developed nations, we're definitely around the middle. If not, I think we're getting towards the bottom. And it's been evident. I mean, Transparency International looks at Canada versus other nations and compares us on things like the perceptions um, corruption perceptions index and we are declining quite rapidly Great. and I think a lot of that is because people have just perceived Canadians as being ethical they perceive yes. that we have these policies that are ethical that you know our, our morals and ethics are all in check but all these things are being exposed that are you know the public is realizing that things have not been what they have seemed for so long so I do think knowing what I know now I think that we've put so much autonomy and we've given a so much authority to certain people that we haven't watched what they've been doing for the last few decades. So we've been electing these politicians, we've put them in these roles, and then we haven't watched what they've done. So we've wow. kind of turned a blind eye, we've let things go on. But now there's things being exposed that can't be concealed any longer. And people are realizing that maybe we put too much trust in the wrong people for periods of time and, and never really watched what they were doing. Yeah, so I, I, I think I do you're, think, I think sorry, you're right. I, I lived, I said, the reason I said developed is because I lived most of my life in Africa and I saw how unethical things are in, in Africa and corruption and everything else. And our perception, the little we knew of Canada was that Canada was one of the most ethical places in the world. That was our perception. But following on from that, we had a guest on the show on Tuesday, Dr. Stefan Mayer from Germany. And we asked him, he's a business consultant and his favorite topic is exterminating sacred cows, right? So it's, it's a really good, you must watch his episode. It's really good. It was published yesterday. But he was, we asked him differences between North America and Europe. And he said, well, don't know too much about North America. I have some clients. The main one would be, it's much easier to fire people in North America than it is in Europe. That, that was his comment, unprompted. So I think that bears out what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Over to Kathleen. So Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about the training courses that you offer? Um, really, up until now, I've been developing training 
programs to suit the client. So I've done training on workplace harassment. I've actually done some training on cannabis in the workplace now that mm-hmm. it's been legalized in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, employees, employers aren't really sure what that means for their workplace. So I've actually incorporated some of my police training on, you know, standard field sobriety testing and what to look for, signs of impairment, because legalizing cannabis is really no different than any of the pharmaceuticals that employees may have taken prior to coming into work. I mean, the training is, is around that for employers, but really I've, I've been developing training based on the problems that I see happening. So things like, you know, how sexual harassment has been normalized in some workplaces and talking about how to overcome workplace culture so that, you know, this actual misconduct acts that may be construed as being illegal acts are not being normalized in certain workplaces simply because it's been tolerated for so long. So really, you know, there isn't anything I'm not comfortable training, but I try to, to look at the experiences I've had, the research that I've conducted and apply that to the client and the workplace that I'm speaking with. And can you tell us a little bit about the books that you've written? Yeah, the first book I wrote was more of, you know, research-based. It was my chance to put all the cases across Canada into one resource because, as I said, you know, as a police whistleblower, I didn't think I was the first one, but I I really had no idea how many came before me until I started to compile this book. So my first book was really just that. It was a research paper to get that information out. My newest book is the one that I really think is going to be more entertaining and more interesting to readers. It's called Police Line Do Not Cross, and I use that name because I have been, I've been called the police officer who crossed the thin blue line. You know, I exposed things that were happening on the inside of the police service because I knew that they were wrong. And the issues that I exposed are things that everybody knows are happening, but everybody has tolerated them. So when you talk about that normalizing in the culture, um, there is a culture of fear in policing to not speak about anything that you know is going on because of the fear of retaliation. Mm -hmm. So my second book, Police Line Do Not Cross, it takes you through my story from the time I first considered becoming a police officer and what motivated me to do that. And then what I was seeing on the job and and what motivated me to speak up. And then I take readers through everything that happened from that point on. So from the first time I spoke up, I was I faced the discipline. You know, even after leaving my job, the police service is still retaliating against me and they're still doing everything they can to stop me from talking about my experiences working there. So the book really is an eye-opener to anyone, like Peter was saying, who believe that Canadians are ethical. You know, this sort of thing wouldn't happen in Canada, but it's all there for the reader to see for themselves. Because, you know, as I said, I don't even work there anymore. And my former police service has now spent over $340,000 on their lawyer to continue to litigate me to try to stop me from talking. So when you talk about the price of free speech, I mean, that's what we're dealing with even here in Canada. Sure, sure. From contacts you still have, do you think things have improved since your experience in the police force? No, I know no. they haven't. And they haven't. I mean, it's, it's evident when, you know, when I bring these things to the attention of the police services board and they don't have any questions for me, they don't want to sit down at a table and engage in any kind of dialogue. So it's evident that there's no desire to change. And right. I'm not the only one. I mean, around the same time that I spoke out, there was a class action lawsuit launched against my police service. It was, you know, a large $167 million class action lawsuit wow. for sexual harassment, you know, gender discrimination. And, and I really thought that then, you know, they were going to have to make changes. They were going to have to listen. But, you know, the lawsuit went away. They, they successfully had it dismissed out of courts and people have forgotten about it. So, right. you know, they've put a couple of programs in place and that's how they say they've addressed it. But I know that nothing has changed. 
I'm going to, can, can I jump in with another question, Kathleen? Sure, go ahead. I, I, I'm beginning to ask you instead of just doing it, so I'm trying to keep this on a <laughs> fair level. <clears throat> I'm going to put my employer hat on for a moment, Kelly, because I prob although I work for myself now with no, no employees, um, <clears throat> for most of my life I've been an employer in small businesses, although I did have quite a few years in the corporate world. <coughs> Excuse me. So I see the, the problems from the employer's side. And I'm not saying that um, <clears throat> all employers are angels. I know they're not. And I, I know that I've bent the rules a few times myself, sometimes out of necessity. As an employer, <coughs> wearing my employer hat, I have a concern that an employee with an axe to grind for a personal problem that's not strictly related to what's happening in the workplace can use the law to really sabotage the operations of the business by making allegations that may be unfounded, but getting the process going. So as, a, as a, an investigator and a consultant, how do you sift through that and find out what's real and what's not real? I'm going to ask a subsidiary one. If we look at, um, oh, what's his name? The guy that was holed up in the Nicaraguan embassy, Asanji, right? That, that spilled the beans on all the American secrets. At what point does whistleblowing move across the thin line from ensuring ethical standards are followed to being, in his case, treasonous? Um, where do you draw that line? So there's two questions for you. Yeah, well, for the first one, I mean, perhaps it's my criminal investigation training mm -hmm. that has taught me, you know, the different ways to spot a false allegation, but okay. you know, with thorough investigation and, and if you speak to enough people, enough people that you know are independent, it is, you, it, it is possible to identify a false allegation. I mean, it, and a good investigator will take the time to speak to several people that are disconnected from the investigation that don't even know the complainant. I mean, right. you really have to do your homework to be able to piece it all together. And the end of the day, you might be piecing together something that the employer wasn't aware of. You, you might be uncovering sure. an issue that had always been there, or you, you might be coming back and saying, I was successfully able to determine that it was a false allegation. And I always encourage employers to have something written into their policy that also deals with the false allegation because you can't just be running around trying to investigate false allegation after no. false allegation so there has to be something in there to deter that um, but with the second comment i mean when it comes to whistleblowing i always take it back to you know the issue that's being exposed is it a matter of public interest because mm -hmm. i'm a firm believer that you know whistleblowing is not just exposing that you know your boss had an affair with someone else's wife i mean that's not whistleblowing it has to be something that you feel is important you know and and when i say whistleblowing going public is not necessarily whistleblowing not whistleblower sure. you know what whistleblowers will do is typically they will follow the proper chains of complaint and only if they've exhausted every means of complaining do they typically go public and try to expose what's going on but it always has to relate back to you know was the exposure made of a matter relating to public interest was it something that the whistleblower felt they had to do so that the issue could be rectified or looked at or investigated whatever the case is so not knowing everything about the assange matter i mean no, i sure. know you know some of those things may have been matters of public interest some of them may may not have been and i don't know his personal motivation if there was any 
to to make some of the exposures that he did. But it always has to come back to examining, you know, is is this a matter of public interest or is it personal interest? Is it a personal vendetta? I mean, because there are a lot of people out there who call themselves whistleblowers that, in my opinion, don't necessarily meet the definition. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> there was a sorry, Kathleen. A quick one example. A couple of years ago, some animal rights people worked undercover in a turkey growing facility. I think it was your part of the world, Kathleen Kirchner, somewhere or Cambridge. I can't remember now. And um, it, it appeared that the the poultry operation was complying with the standards that it was supposed to, but these people didn't like what was going on, and they sneaked in video cameras and that sort of thing. Uh, is that ethical? That's what I'm, my question to you, is that behavior ethical? Yeah, well, you know what, it's funny because when I saw that footage, I don't know if it was that exact case, but it was something like that. I remember thinking, well, you know, is there an ethical way to kill a bird? You know, so I remember they were, it was about the method in which they were being killed, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, and that, so. you know, the reporters didn't think that was ethical. But I remember thinking, well, I'd be, I would be a hypocrite then if I said, I want to eat those dead birds, but I don't like the way they're that killed. they're being killed. I mean, because there really isn't a good way to do it. In my no. opinion, there's, there's no soft or gentle way to do it. You're still no. taking the life of that animal. So you have the right to choose to be vegetarian. You have the right to choose to eat animals. I mean, there's, there's cases like that where, you know, you've got that fine line between someone's opinion of something not being right. And then, you know, is it right? Almost. Yeah. It's almost like saying, well, if we decide it's not right, then we just should stop eating animals because mm. that issue would, would stand across the board. Every time an animal is butchered, sure. we have to ask ourselves the same question. Yeah. Mink farms are another one. I, I know someone who runs a mink farm and I, I don't like that and I wouldn't do it, but uh, the minks are treated well and then killed but if they animal rights people let them out their cages, they run across roads and get squashed by cars and taken away by eagles and coyotes. Yeah. And, you know, so anyway, that's enough babbling for me. So Kathleen, have you got something else for Kelly? Kelly, how do our listeners um, reach you? How do they contact you? Well, Fit for Duty's website is Fit for Duty. So it's F-I-T, the number four, D-U-T-Y dot C-A. And from there, I explain the services I provide. There's contact information. And there's a little bit about us on that page. Um, but I also created a personal website, which is kellydonovan.ca. And that goes into more of me as the whistleblower, how I got to where I am today. And there's a spot there where um, listeners could purchase my book as well. And I, I've got a whole bunch of links to videos. You know, I've made addresses at Queen's Park. That those are all up on my website. So there's lots of, lots to, to engage your listeners. Okay. And Kelly, another one for you. As I said earlier, I heard you speak in Kitchener. Uh, of course, there's not many live speaking engagements going on right at the moment. But are you still, when things get back to normal, will you still be on the speaking circuit? Can people still get you as a speaker at events? Yeah, I recently registered with the Speakers Bureau of Canada. And again, they are also slowed down because of COVID. So sure. I'm not even sure if my profile is is live on their website. But I do plan on doing a lot more speaking engagements because I do feel that, you know, having had the experience as a whistleblower, I think contributes a lot more to a talk on ethics than someone who has never had to to step out of their comfort zone, you know, make that disclosure, take those risks. So I try to share my experience um, in, in, a, in an attempt to motivate, inspire people, you know, not necessarily to whistleblow, but just to know that it, you know, it's always important that they stay true to their internal set of ethics and morals, and that no, one, no workplace should ever ask their people to sacrifice those things in order to stay employed. Right. Good, good point. What was the name of that? Speakers Bureau of Canada, is it? Yes. Okay. I'll look that one up as well. Well, that's that's great. Thank you very much. Very Thank you. interesting. Yeah. 
Are we? <coughs> and Kathleen, over to you. Well, it looks like we're out of time for today, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate uh, your, and, uh, having you on and hopefully we get to see you again on our show. Um, Absolutely. We thank all of you, our audience, for tuning in. We appreciate uh, you tuning in and please keep your comments coming. We always read them and we so appreciate them. And if anybody out there is interested in becoming a guest on our show, please do not hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. Until next time, we look forward to seeing you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>